Terrorism, law, and democracy. Terrorism and the rule of law. The international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th, 2001. Long-term memory radio. Part 5. The global impact of September 11th. Welcome to Terrorism, Law and Democracy, a documentary series examining the consequences of September 11th on Canada's legal and political system. My name is Khalid M. Safar. This is Part 5, The Global Impact of September 11th. As we continue to examine the legislative impact of the war on terrorism within Canada, we will also consider the international dimensions of this war. In today's episode, we focus on the American response to terrorism, particularly the U.S. Patriot Act, as well as the effect of the war on terrorism on Canadian immigration law and Canadian Arab communities. Our first speaker is Kate Martin, director of the Center for National Security Studies in Washington, D.C. Her perspectives on American national security were recorded March 25th during the conference Terrorism, Law, and Democracy. Bill Graham is Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs. He spoke at the same conference on March 26 about the international context of Canada's war on terrorism. Amina Shirazi is counsel for the Canadian Arab Federation and works in the field of immigration and refugee law. I interviewed her about the Canadian Arab Federation's objections to Bill C-36 and the effect of September 11th on immigration in Canada. The panel, How Have Western Countries Responded, was recorded on March 25, 2002 at the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy, organized by the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice. The conference asked the question, how is Canada changing following September 11th? I would like to thank the CIAJ for making these audio transcripts available. You can visit their website at www.ciaj-icaj.ca. The panel, How Have Western Countries Responded, was moderated by the Dean of McGill's Faculty of Law, Peter Luprecht, and focused on international responses to terrorism after September 11th. I happened to be in Manhattan on that terrible day, and looking back uh, to that terrible day, what struck me right from the beginning was the speed with which a language of war was adopted by the leaders as soon as they became visible again on the 11th of September. And um, the main messages were there, that the war might be long, and it was said right from the beginning it might be longer than the Cold War, that one didn't know where it would be conducted, but it would be long and tough. What also strikes me until today is that there was and there is very little serious analysis of the roots of what happened, the roots of that hatred. Now if you advocate such analysis that does of course not mean that you are in any way condoning I'm certainly one who absolutely rejects 
Nazi ideology, but I think it would have been good before they came to power even to analyze what made their ascension possible. We will look into the response of Western countries. I suppose not only what they have done practically, the danger of derapage, and I suppose we look into these. I think there have been a number of those. One of them, I believe, is the control of information. Another one is the way in which a critical comment and dissent on government actions has been treated particularly in the United States of America. This is being brandmarked, for example, by Attorney General Ashcroft as anti-patriotic attitudes. Like Canada, the United States has introduced and passed into law major and fundamental new powers for the state. The heart of the U.S. response has been the U.S. Patriot Act, also known as uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Kate Martin is director of the Center for National Security Studies, a nonprofit human rights and civil liberties organization located in Washington, D.C., which for 25 years has worked to ensure that U.S. governmental actions taken to protect national security interests do not violate individual civil liberties and human rights, nor undermine constitutional government. The Center works to assure accountability of intelligence agencies, protect freedom of information, combat excessive government secrecy, prevent illegal government surveillance, and protect free exchange of ideas and information across international borders. She speaks about the Patriot Act and civil liberty concerns in the United States. Since September 11th, there has been, I think, a very fundamental change in the perspective of those involved in policy questions in Washington. And I speak not of uh, government people, but of those of us on the outside, including the communities of people who have um, worked for many years um, and have been skeptical, for example, of the uses of American force during the Cold War. Those communities who are and have been skeptical of government claims of threats to the national security. Nevertheless, I think that uh, we start from a different perspective, which is the following. It is now a real and very palpable question, I think for the majority of people in Washington, about whether or not there is a real possibility that a small nuclear device will be set off in Philadelphia or in any other close by American city. If it were set off in Washington in some ways, the question becomes moot, but, um, and that is, <laughs> That is not a question that those of us who worry about this can any longer dismiss 
as the question of a crackpot. And it's the question in a way that underlies these difficult problems about what do we do now. Um, I think that from my perspective, the question of what would happen if a small nuclear power device was set off is that the Bill of Rights to the United States Constitution would be suspended, if not repealed. And that while I can argue and think that that would be not only an inappropriate but completely ineffective and immaterial response to that event, I have no confidence whatsoever that we could resist that happening if there were a nuclear attack or a nuclear explosion someplace inside the United States. So I begin then with the recognition that there is a crucial responsibility on the part of the United States government to prevent future terrorist attacks. At the same time, I reject the notion that there is some necessary trade-off between civil liberties, human rights, and constitutional procedures on the one hand and security on the other hand. While many in the United States have cast the terrible situation we find ourselves in today as one in which we must decide what liberties we are willing to sacrifice for an increased measure of safety, I do not believe that is either an accurate or helpful analysis. Before asking what trade-offs are constitutional, we must ask what gain in security is accomplished by restrictions on civil liberties. And it is only by forcing the government to articulate why and how each particular restriction will contribute to security that we can have any assurance that the steps being taken will in fact be effective against terrorism. So today, rather than outline all of the measures that have been taken by the United States government domestically since September 11th that have raised questions about the balance, I want to concentrate my remarks on two particular subjects which I think might be of interest in terms of a comparative perspective between Canada and the United States. And those are the questions of uh, preventive detention and um, surveillance and investigations of uh, political and religious uh, groups inside the country. Um, but I do want to first mention that I think there is a serious question in the United States that I'm not going to dwell on um, about a government effort to clamp down on information about the war um, and as part of that an effort, uh, it's actually always accompanied and always I think motivated by an effort to uh, clamp down on dissent and to muzzle questioning about US government policy. Um, I'm going to talk briefly about um, the USA Patriot Act in connection with these two issues and also some about the actual um, practice and um, what's happened in the US since September 11th. Um, since September 11th, we've seen in some ways an extraordinary shift in rhetoric by the Attorney General. The Attorney General is, I think, the uh, counterpart to your justice minister in charge of the uh, Department of Justice. He is the chief law enforcement officer. Um, he no longer speaks of the activities of the Justice Department in terms of law enforcement. That is, in terms of the investigating um, planned or committed crimes 
um, with the objective of prosecuting individuals for that act, criminal activity, and the secondary objective, of course, of preventing a crime before it happens. Rather, he now speaks almost exclusively in terms of prevention and disruption of terrorism. Before September 11th, I think we had a um, unquestioned and I think universal understanding in the United States that individuals could be jailed prior to being convicted at a trial or prior to being found deportable in violation of the immigration laws only upon an individualized showing before some kind of judicial officer that they posed a risk of flight and therefore would either not show up for the judicial hearing or a danger to community if they were released on bail before trial. That understanding is, of course, based in the constitutional guarantees in the Bill of Rights, both um, uh, for the protection against imprisonment without probable cause of criminal activity and the right to bail as a constitutional right. Um, in the Patriot Act, and since 9-11, we have seen an extraordinary erosion of that basic principle. Eight days after September 11th, the Bush administration sent a draft anti-terrorism bill to the Congress that became the USA Patriot Act. Unlike what I understand to be the situation in Canada, the bill in the United States was not drafted in response to the attacks, but instead contained many separate authorities, amendments to many different statutes that the government had long been seeking. Many of the provisions are in fact unrelated to terrorism. There's a provision for example, that authorizes um, secret uh, execution of search warrants in any kind of criminal case. Um, and in response to the administration's urging the Congress to pass the bill immediately, many in the Congress and those of us on the outside urged the administration to separate out those authorities that it needed immediately to fight terrorism and to, um, to consider the rest of the authorities in the usual legislative process. The administration refused to do so. Instead, it demanded that the Congress pass the entire bill immediately. And when the Congress had not done so within two weeks, the Attorney General and the Republican leadership in the Congress publicly warned that further terrorist attacks were imminent and implied that if these new powers were not in place, those attacks would be the fault of the Democrats in Congress who had not yet passed the bill. Congress could not withstand that political pressure. In the USA Patriot Act, the Department of Justice specifically sought authority for indefinite preventive detention of non-citizens on the grounds that the Attorney General believed an individual might be a terrorist. The original proposal from the administration provided no uh, limitation on the duration of such preventive detention, and the bill specifically stated that the substantive basis for the Attorney General's certification that an individual was a terrorist would not be subject to judicial review. 
That provision, which I want to emphasize applied only to non-citizens, was the subject of perhaps the greatest controversy in the, pa in the consideration of the USA Patriot Act. In fact, in the end, negotiations with the administration produced some safeguards in the final bill. The Attorney General's certification now that a non-citizen is a threat to national security can only justify holding a non-citizen without charges for seven days. At the end of those seven days, the, the non-citizen must either be charged under the criminal law or immigration proceedings must be instituted against that individual. However, at the far end of the process, uh, the new law contains no protections. Even if one is found not deportable under the immigration laws and basically then has the right to remain in the United States, the Attorney General at that point is then free to certify the individual as a threat to national security and keep him in jail indefinitely. However, perhaps most um, significant uh, about all this is that that authority has not been used since September 11th. Uh, two other, instead we've seen something, uh, we've seen basically a practice of preventive detention that relied on authorities already in place. Within a month of the Patriot Act, uh, the President claimed again the unilateral authority to detain indefinitely non-citizens he suspected of terrorism. As many of you know, I think on November 13th, the president issued a military order establishing uh, military commissions to try suspected terrorists. The order applied to any non-citizen found either within the United States or abroad and one of its provisions that was less noticed and less discussed concerned not the trial on criminal charges, but the authority to simply detain individuals indefinitely uh, under the military uh, provisions in that order. There was, as you all probably know, an enormous public outcry about that order in fact, it has not been used, the authority in that order has not been used by the administration since the order was issued. They have indicted two individuals in connection with terrorism, and both of those indictments were brought in civilian courts, although they could have been brought under the terms of the military order and the military commissions. Last Thursday in Washington, the Defense Department finally issued regulations implementing the President's military order, and while it discusses the procedures for military commission trials of, uh, on, on criminal charges, it makes no reference to uh, authority to detain individuals under the order. Nevertheless, although the ch actual changes in the law since 9-11 have been limited on the subject of preventive detention, in fact, there has been an extraordinary policy of massive preventive detention. In the first few days after the attack, some 75 individuals were picked up and detained. While the administration sought increased authority from the Congress to detain the foreign individuals that provision the Patriot Act I just spoke about, it picked up hundreds more individuals. As of November 5th, 
the Justice Department announced that 1,147 people had been detained. Since that date, it has refused to give out any subsequent to totals. While trumpeting the number of arrests in an apparent effort to reassure the public, the Justice Department refused to provide the most basic information about who had been arrested and on what basis. It basically refused to give the names of any of the individuals who had been arrested or to provide the charges that were uh, brought against them. Whether or not in the exact details of what this policy of preventive detention consists of are not yet clear, because even as of today, the names are secret. Only after congressional and public pressure did the Justice Department release the names of some 100 people who have been charged with federal criminal, uh, federal criminal offenses, only one person on conspiracy charges related to September 11th. Instead, we now have a list of 718 non-citizens who have been detained by the government in connection with the investigation. Their names are deleted from the list. The government has announced that as of today, more than 300 of those individuals are still in custody. My organization, along with 20 other organizations, have now filed suit under the Freedom of Information Act to obtain the names of the jailed individuals. And the government is resisting that claim on the grounds that releasing the names will harm its terrorism investigation and will um, interfere with the detainee's privacy. Privacy was needed to shield what we suspect are massive violations of their rights. Um, at the same time, shortly after September 11th, the Justice Department instituted an across-the-board policy that all of those individuals picked up on immigration violations would be subject to closed hearings in immigration courts. There would be no individualized determination in any of those hearings as to whether or not there was some necessity for closing the immigration hearings, and the hearings would be closed even over the objections of the detainees or the non-citizens who wish to have their hearings public. Though that policy is now under attack and has been challenged in two cases in federal court in the United States. Again, that policy of closing the hearings uh, was not carried out pursuant to any new authority in the Patriot Act, but was simply done as an exercise of executive power in the immigration field. At the same time, again, without going through the legislative process and quite apart from the Patriot Act, on October 29th, the Justice Department announced a new regulation that gave it the authority to automatically stay any bail decision issued in an immigration court so that when an immigration judge ruled that an individual should be released on a certain amount of bail, the government could automatically stay that decision and keep the individual in jail pending appeal rather than having to persuade the appeals court that it should enter in a, a stay while it brought the appeal. What we know about the individuals who are in jail is the following. We have every reason to believe that only a mere handful of them have been linked in any way to terrorism or to any of the hijackers. 
Indeed, the government itself has filed papers admitting that it has basically cleared more than half of those individuals of any connection to terrorism. There is growing evidence that the government has abandoned any effort to comply with the constitutional requirement that an individual may only be arrested when there is probable cause to believe he is engaged in criminal activity or is in violation of the immigration statutes. But it's now seeking to jail individuals it deems suspicious until the FBI announces they are cleared. The FBI has been providing a form affidavit to the immigration judges seeking to keep these individuals in jail, which relies primarily on a recitation of the terrible facts of September 11th, instead of containing any facts about the particular individual evidencing any connection to terrorism, much less constituting probable cause. The affidavit simply recites that the FBI wishes to make further inquiries. In the meantime, the individual is held in jail. The, in this, carrying out this policy, the government is relying on pre-existing uh, legal authorities. First, it has brought minor criminal charges against those individuals who it could. For example, uh, minor charges of document fraud or credit card fraud <coughs> of a kind which the Assistant Attorney General admitted would usually be uh, not even prosecuted under the prosecutorial uh, guidelines, and even if prosecuted, would not result in pretrial detention uh, of a length of time that sometimes exceeds the, the uh, sentence that would be imposed at the end. The second basis that they've used for jailing people is that they suspect that they're in violation of the immigration laws. And the third basis that they have used is a pre-existing law uh, allowing the detention of individuals who have material information concerning a criminal proceeding. It's a little used statute in the past that allows the government to jail someone who is a material witness in a criminal case in order to secure their testimony at trial. It specifically requires the government to make every effort to secure their testimony in some other way, for example, by deposition before trial, so that the individual need not be detained. The use of the material witness statute has been completely shrouded in secrecy. The government admits that it has people jailed on, under that statute. It refuses to say how many people it has jailed under that statute. It has refused to identify which courts have issued those warrants so that the press and the public cannot go to those courts challenging the secrecy orders. And it has refused to even release the language of the sealing order in the material witness cases on which it relies in claiming that it cannot tell us which courts have entered such orders. Um, all of these circumstances, I think, raise serious questions about the effectiveness of the current effort, whether the law enforcement is now the kind of targeted investigation of identified individuals that was described by Mr. Elcock this morning, or whether it is simply a dragnet which will only be successful by chance. The fact that a thousand or even five thousand individuals in a country with eight million undocumented immigrants 
are arrested is no assurance that the truly dangerous ones are among them. I just want to make uh, two final comments. First, I, I want to say that I think this whole question is not such an easy question politically. It's an easy question, I think, in terms of the human rights in some ways, because, but it is not a question of balancing the rights of terrorists versus the security of the rest of us, as was suggested by one of the speakers this morning. Rather, I think it is a question of balancing the violations or the erosions of rights of others, foreigners, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, to make the majority feel safer. And that politically is a much more difficult problem to deal with. Uh, my time's out, and I just want to mention one problem in the connection with the uh, issue of surveillance and investigation of individuals or groups suspected of terrorism. And I think the problem we face in balancing the need for security and respecting civil liberties in looking at this kind of connection is the problem of distinguishing between that kind of political violence, which in fact may be made criminal consistent with any interpretation of all international and domestic protections, um, that there is no interpretation under which the acts of political violence come within the protections for either freedom of speech, freedom of association, and freedom of religion. And distinguishing between that political and religious activity, which may in fact support the political ends of the terrorists, or may be a, a religious view that is consistent with the religious views of the terrorists, but is in the end, I think, entitled to the protection of basic human rights uh, instruments. We, of course, have seen many examples of that in the past. The ANC in South Africa engaged in political violence. The Sinn Féin is the political arm of the IRA. And I don't believe that we in the United States, and I don't know about it in Canada, have yet solved the problem of how we have an effective investigation that doesn't close its eyes to the connections between, uh, in this instance, I think a religious view and religious activity, and at the same time recognizes that under the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, protection for that activity has to be accorded the highest priority inside. Kate Martin is director of the Center for National Security Studies in Washington, D.C. She spoke before the conference Terrorism, Law, and Democracy in March 2002. For more information about the Center and American anti-terrorism legislation, visit the Center's website at www.cnss.gwu.edu. The United States and Canadian legislative responses are not unique. The tension between civil liberties and national security has also been experienced in other Western democratic societies. The European Union has introduced sweeping police powers relating to communications and telecommunications. 
the United Kingdom is incorporating these surveillance powers under its Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, or RIP, and it has introduced its Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Bill 2001, immediately after the events of September 11th. The major debate about this British legislation was its provisions for indefinite detention of foreign nationals suspected of being terrorists. This provision has been ruled unconstitutional under the European Union's Charter of Human Rights. Italy is proceeding with a major overhaul of its criminal law to allow security forces to commit crimes in the interests of national security. In France, where legislation concerning terrorism and terrorist affiliation is not new, new laws allow for even more and intrusive preventative searches and arrests. Canada's new national security measures have been designed to incorporate important international obligations and to facilitate international cooperation against terrorism and its disruptive economic effects. Canadian criminal law now provides a broad and far-reaching definition of terrorist activities and groups through Bill C-36, the new Anti-Terrorism Act. This and the proposed Bill C-55, called the Public Security Act, implement 12 existing UN anti-terrorism conventions into Canadian law. They facilitate the sharing of resources and intelligence between Canada and its allies in the war on terrorism. They redefine the powers of the Minister of National Defence and implement the UN Security Council Resolution 1373, adopted on September 28, 2001, in response to the terrorist crimes. Resolution 1373 sets the standard for international action and reflects an international consensus on the importance of waging a war on terrorism. Bill Graham is Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Speaking before the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy, he outlines the international framework for Canada's national security and for its participation in the war on terror. La communauté internationale n'a évidemment pas attendu les attentats du 11 septembre pour réagir au face au terrorisme. Il existait déjà aux Nations Unies un cadre juridique important qui comprend 12 conventions qui vise à éliminer la possibilité pour les terroristes de trouver l'asile ou que ce soit dans le monde et à mettre en œuvre un régime rigoureux d'extradition et de poursuite pour les auteurs de crimes terroristes. Le Canada est signataire de 12 de ces conventions. J'ai même eu l'honneur de déposer dernièrement l'instrument de ratification de la Convention pour la répression au financement du terrorisme, ce qui porte à 11 le nombre de conventions antiterroristes auxquelles le Canada est parti. La mise en œuvre de cette Convention pour le Canada témoigne de notre volonté de lutter contre le financement du terrorisme et, de, et en le criminalisant. Notre législation à cet égard ne vise aucun groupe ethnique ou religieux en particulier, mais des personnes et des organisations impliquées dans des actes terroristes que aucune considération politique ou religieuse ne saurait justifier. 
nous allons ratifier bientôt la deuxième convention, celui qui porte sur la répression des attentats terroristes à l'explosif. En le ratifiant, nous rejoindrons le Royaume-Uni comme seul membre du G8 signataire de toutes les conventions de l'ONU contre, le, contre le terrorisme. Le cadre juridique international de cesse, ne cesse d'évaluer. Des négociations sont en cours pour, pour, pour adopter un instrument global, soit la Convention générale sur le terrorisme international. Contrairement aux douze conventions existantes, elle visera tous les actes terroristes, au lieu de certains crimes terroristes en particulier. Le Canada a exhorté les membres de l'ONU à faire en sorte que ces négociations aboutissent bientôt. Les premières conventions antiterroristes portaient sur certains types d'activités terroristes, comme les détournements d'avions. Les négociations d'une convention générale couvrant les actes terroristes nous amèneront à examiner une question particulièrement épineuse, à savoir, existe-t-il des situations où de tels actes se justifient car, comme le disent certains, un terroriste aux yeux des uns serait un combattant de liberté aux yeux des autres. Or, pour le Canada, quoi que la réponse à cette question, il y a un principe fondamental. Il est au contraire au droit international de tuer intentionnellement des civils innocents. L'ONU et la tribune où la communauté internationale a négocié ses conventions contre le terrorisme. L'ONU elle-même a montré qu'elle peut jouer un rôle important dans la lutte contre le terrorisme, notamment avec l'adoption en septembre dernier de la résolution 1373 du Conseil de la sécurité. Cette résolution historique demande aux membres de prendre certaines mesures pour geler les avoirs de particuliers et des entités liées au terrorisme. En appui à la résolution 1373, le Canada a mis sans tarder en vigueur le règlement d'application de la résolution des Nations Unies sur la lutte contre le terrorisme, afin de geler les avoirs de ceux et celles qui commettent ou facilitent des actes terroristes et d'introduire, de fournir et de recueillir des fonds pour les activités terroristes. En date du 11 mars dernier, 323 personnes et groupes auxquels s'applique ce règlement ont été identifiés. Comme le demande la résolution 1373, le Canada rend compte au, au Conseil de sécurité par, par l'intermédiaire du Comité contre le terrorisme des mesures qu'il prend pour mettre en œuvre la résolution. Le Comité a examiné notre rapport à sa réaction a été positive. La communauté internationale dispose d'éléments essentiels pour un cadre juridique international contre le terrorisme, mais elle ne peut pas s'en contenter. Une interdiction, interdiction légale n'est pas n'est efficace que dans la mesure où tous les pays y souscrivent et où elle est appliquée. Les pays qui n'ont pas les moyens, que ce soit technique, législatif, judiciaire ou policier, de lutter contre le terrorisme ont besoin de notre aide. Comme l'a annoncé le Premier ministre chrétien, le Canada est prêt à fournir des experts pour aider d'autres États pour qu'ils puissent s'avérer difficile de respecter des, des obligations juridiques internationales. As chairman of the G8 Foreign Minister process this year, I will be engaged in harnessing the unique assets of this group, 
in support of capacity building on counterterrorism measures in other countries. The G8 has a proven track record on tackling tough global issues, and Canada has been at the forefront of the G8 effort to curb and eliminate terrorist actions. There is a G8 consensus on what is necessary in the light of the fight against terrorism. We need to deny support and sanctuary for terrorists, strengthen the international legal framework through universal adherence to the global counter-terrorism conventions, and cooperate and coordinate at the policy and operational levels. Canada will use the occasion of our G8 presidency to pursue other innovative ways to support the campaign against terrorism and wider global stability. As I noted earlier, our challenge in responding to terrorism is not to lose sight of the values that we cherish. Respect for the rule of law underpins Canadian society and fundamental Canadian values and identity. Canadians believe in the rule of law and in legal institutions to remedy injustice. Throughout our history, the rule of law has been our strength and the foundation upon which we have built this country. It is a fundamental part of our democratic tradition and is a principle that Canada promotes internationally. I had the privilege earlier this year, or earlier this month, to address the 58th session of the United Nations Com Commission on Human Rights, taking place in Geneva. As I stated there, echoing the words of the High Commissioner Mary Robinson, and I quote, the war on terrorism must not be used as a pretext for repression. It is a misconception that greater security can only be assured by compromising our respect for fundamental values and human rights. In the wake of September 11th, it is more important than ever to challenge this mistaken assumption. This message that Canada is delivering internationally is consistent with what we have done domestically. The preamble to Bill C-36 acknowledges these precepts, declaring Quote, Canadians and people everywhere are entitled to live their lives in peace, freedom, and security. It goes on to say, the Parliament of Canada, recognizing that terrorism is a matter of national concern that affects the security of the nation, is committed to taking comprehensive measures to protect Canadians against terrorist activity, while continuing to respect and promote the values reflected in and the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The creation of the norms which are reflected in Bill C-36 and other measures we have adopted to ensure our collective national security was accompanied by a vigorous debate in Parliament and in the caucuses of all our parties. The ensuing legislation reflects our Canadian values, respect for individual rights in a state which provides security for its citizens. Indeed, security and human rights are not mutually exclusive, but rather I would suggest mutually reinforcing. The security of the state and the security of its people cannot be effectively assured by considering each in isolation. Respect for human rights usually underpins a stable security environment. Respect for human rights is fundamental. Without it, democracy cannot thrive. Its absence encourages, indeed, the conditions in which terrorism can, can flourish. Promoting the rule of law internationally is important for Canada as an extension of our own beliefs. And it is important because, and I'm sure that all of you in this room would agree with me who are no, very knowledgeable in this area, that in an age of interdependence, the international system can only work if there is global adherence to shared laws and standards. As Prime Minister Trudeau once noted, interdependence is the dominant fact of life in our era, that we are all responsible for each other's well-being, and that we must learn to live together 
or face the prospect of perishing together. We Canadians, who live in one of the most open societies in the world, are also the first to recognize that the guarantee and development of our human rights at home depends, to a significant degree, on the creation and enforcement of a vibrant international framework of norms which reflect our values. The critical question is, how do we make the international system work? How can it be effective? For Canada, just systems of law and governance are essential guarantors of peace and security. Ensuring the safety and security of people implies the establishment of an international capacity to hold perpetrators of human rights violations accountable for their actions. It also requires attention to strengthening the transparency and accountability of public institutions, especially those responsible for providing security and accountability of justice. Over the past 50 years, we have witnessed fundamental advances in the elimination of impunity and the acceptance of international accountability. To name a few for which, again, many people in this room are familiar. In the aftermath of the Second World War, the international military tribunals in Nuremberg and the Far East. The establishment of ad hoc international criminal tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. The agreement signed earlier this year to create a hybrid international domestic war crimes tribunal in Sierra Leone. The sight of former President Milosevic standing on trial in The Hague. The decision of the British House of Lords in the Pinochet case, which found that the former head of state was subject to extradition for crimes of torture. And the increasing number of countries, including Canada, which have adopted legislation allowing them to try those who commit genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. You're listening to Remarks of Bill Graham, Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs, recorded on March 26, 2002. Western democratic societies to the terrorist crimes of September 11th are not strictly limited to anti-terrorist legislation. This year, Canada overhauled its immigration law and introduced the new Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. Amina Shirazi is legal counsel for the Canadian Arab Federation. On behalf of the CAF, she presented objections to Bill C-36 before the House of Commons and Senate committees which reviewed the proposed legislation. Based in Toronto, she works in immigration and refugee law. I spoke to her about Bill C-36 and the impact of September 11th on immigration and refugee concerns. Right, well, the Canadian Arab Federation, uh, immediately after September 11th, of course, put out statements condemning all acts of terrorism and expressed our concern that um, people remain calm and not target Arabs or Muslims as they had been identified as some of the suspects in the early investigation. Our concerns were heightened by the um, announcement of this government shortly after, in, in October, that they would be um, implementing a new law to deal specifically with the area of terrorism and making amendments to the criminal code as well as a whole plethora of other legislation. And uh, so the first draft of 
Bill C-36, which was the Anti-Terrorism Act, uh, the Canadian Arab Federation studied and made extensive submissions to the House of Commons Committee, and then um, after the second revision, made extensive submissions to the Senate Committee and outlined our concerns. Um, I can go through the major concerns if you want. Yes, I would. That would be very interesting. Okay. Well, our concern was and still remains that the anti-terrorism legislation, which came into effect in December, has been drafted as severely overbroad, and it catches a lot of activity uh, in its definition of what constitutes a terrorist activity. And some of those concerns we have are not only limited to the Arab and Muslim community, but to progressive and social movements throughout nationally. For example, it includes certain types of strikes and work stoppage actions. It includes consumer and market boycotts. It um, includes anti-globalization protests and general dissent. And we were very concerned that general dissent and political opposition was being now brought within the definition of terrorist acts, which is completely inappropriate and constitutionally offensive and unjustifiable in a democratic society. Another concern we had is that there were uh, new offenses that were created by the Anti-Terrorism Act that are not going to be part of the criminal code. Our position was that everything that occurred on September 11th was already illegal and that there was no need for um, new offenses to have been created. If new offenses were to be created, they should be directed at what the act is as opposed to defining what the intentions could be of people. Um, so it, it contains now unacceptable offenses that don't require any knowledge, for example, and one of the, the offenses is facilitation of a terrorist activity. So you could be facilitating something that has been now labeled terrorist activity without ever knowing. And that is a big problem because in our criminal justice system, we have identified that it's very important for the accused to not only do what they've done, that they're charged with, but also to have the knowledge to do what they've done. Um, so that's actually quite uh, offensive for us. The other thing is that the new measures that um, have been created by this legislation give broad sweeping powers to uh, police, to law enforcement officials, and to the intelligence in this country. So it's unacceptable that the preventative arrest clause, which allows for arrest without a warrant, without a charge, for up to 72 hours, that's three days, without any any uh, prevention from having someone rearrested if they're released after 72 hours. So basically, you can be arrested on the basis of suspicion, not on the basis of evidence, without a warrant, and you can be detained for up to three days. So that's three days of your life being completely disrupted. And once you're out, there's nothing that prevents the police from going and charging you all over again. And we call this the revolving 72-hour detention uh, because it can be perpetual. 
I have a whole list of other things, but I don't know if you want me to go through it in such detail. I think, well, the, the detail is really important, um, and it's, 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 <clears throat> it's been reiterated by a variety of groups. I'm wondering, in terms of some of the concerns you've just outlined, it hasn't, it hasn't even been a, a year since much of this legislation has been adopted, and some of, it, some of the other legislation that deals with national security, like C-55, are still being debated. But I'm wondering if the, some of the fears expressed by the Canadian Arab Federation, some of the worries about the overly broad powers, are beginning to be substantiated by the experiences of, of uh, uh, yourselves or, or individuals um, in this country. If you have, uh, if you're seeing that the application is beginning to test the boundaries of what a year and a half ago we would have thought is unacceptable. Right. Well, for the Arab and Muslim community, we've been dealing with similar provisions, but not in the criminal code. We've been dealing with it under the Immigration Act. And what we've been dealing with, which has been really difficult, are the secret trial mechanism procedures for deporting uh, permanent residents and foreign nationals from this country. Very br briefly, what is this secret provision? Because much of the legislation seems to have included in it elements of this secrecy for national security and investigation purposes. Okay, well basically what happens is that if you are an individual in Canada who has been deemed inadmissible by Immigration Canada, not by the police, and a, a precursor to that is not to have been charged with anything criminally or to be convicted of anything, what can happen is that CSIS usually is the one who triggers this process. CSIS can file something called a security certificate um, with the court. And basically what happens is that the mechanism of the Immigration Act take over so that the judicial proceedings to determine whether or not the certificate is reasonable will be the ones governed by the Immigration Act, not by the criminal law or by the, the, the charter. So you'll have, for example, um, a permit. Uh, the security certificates will permit arbitrary arrest without reason or without informing the person why they're being arrested, and they can be detained, and they're put under immigration detention. Um, then they, uh, these uh, secret trial provisions also permit trial by secret evidence, which the person who is accused and his or her lawyer never see. They never see the evidence because CSIS invokes national security. And once they invoke national security, everything becomes secret because they deem it a security threat to disclose this information to anyone other than themselves. Um, these mechanisms also permit the withholding of evidence even from the federal court judge because the evidence that is presented to the judge is summarized in a security intelligence report. So they don't get to see the actual evidence they get to see a summary of the evidence, okay? Um, another problem is that this uh, trial mechanism permits charging and convicting persons on completely untested evidence, which is contrary to our law since uh, 1215, you know? So it's quite draconian. And it also, um, during the hearing, the federal court doesn't have any constitutional authority and can't apply the Constitution. So you have someone who is accused before the courts, and what we've seen is predominantly they've been either members uh, of uh, the Tamil community or Arab and Muslim community, where basically you have to go to court and defend uh, yourself against threats, uh, against accusations of being a threat to national interest and national security, 
without having a chance to see what the evidence is, without your lawyer being able to see the evidence or cross-examine on it, without the Constitution applying to the proceedings, and without having a right to appeal, because there is no right to appeal from the finding of a federal court judge. Once a federal court judge says that, yes, the security certificate is reasonable, then you become deportable. And these provisions are, are completely offensive and have uh, predominantly and disproportionately victimized uh, Arabs and Muslims. We have present cases of Mr. Um, uh, Mahmoud Jabala and Mr. Muhammad Majoub. And of course, what we've been seeing recently with uh, the case of Muhammad Jabara, which is he was uh, extradited, <laughs> so to speak, without any legal proceedings, without any legal process, without even ever being charged. So Arabs and Muslims in this country are very uh, in a very precarious situation and to the extent that the rights that people have as Canadian citizens don't even apply to them. How did we how did we get to this point uh, in in less in in a year where we're so celebrating 20 years of charter rights mm -hmm. to pretty much revoking some of the substantial ideas about evidence about innocence about process uh, these accruals uh, as you say from 1215 to today how did in the space of a year uh, suddenly flip from celebrating charter rights and evolution to revoking the basic elements of what we call civil society and civil law. Well, you see, the Charter has uh, is a very progressive and beautiful document. And if it's applied to certain proceedings, for example, immigration proceedings, they can give rights to refugees and immigrants who, are the who have to be some of the most vulnerable people in our society. We had, for example, in 1985, the Supreme Court made the Singh decision, which said that refugees have a right to a hearing, that no refugee case must be determined without there being a hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal. Now, this has resulted in, um, you know, taking away a lot of power from uh, the Department of Citizenship and Immigration and from the government. When you have the courts who actually enforce the charter, you're giving more rights to those people who are more vulnerable to state power. One way in which the state can reassert their power is by passing legislation that is immune from the Charter. And I think what the state wants to do is they want to have absolute control over who comes into the country and who remains in the country, and they don't want the Charter to interfere. And so we've seen um, many amendments, incremental amendments, through the Immigration Act. Um, and now through the Citizenship Act, and now through this whole change, change in the Immigration Act, and September 11th was just the excuse that the government needed to go a step beyond and, ha and pass legislation of general application to all Canadians, regardless of their immigration status. How do you think ethnicity in, in this instance, uh, particularly for those of Muslim or Arab uh, background, descent, or, or ideology, um, how important is ethnicity uh, and targeting uh, so-called Arabs only at this point an essential element in steamrolling through this this legislation that actually targets and could target a variety of individuals, communities, ethnic or ideological or political? Well, whenever the government passes legislation that is contrary to democratic principles or constitutional values, they need a pretty good excuse to be able to get away with it. And if we look at Canada's history, we look at how um, when, particularly during times of war, and after September 11th, we were at war uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, uh, what 
what needs to happen is that there needs to be a creation of an enemy within Canada to justify the presence of an enemy outside of Canada and to justify war and war expenditure and our presence in a combative role overseas. And Arabs and Muslims have become this scapegoat in in the current climate so that they have you know, been used to justify not only our foreign policy and our action overseas, but our uh, our changes in domestic legislation and our changes in, in our political position with respect to foreign affairs, especially with respect to the Middle East. Um, so I think what is what the Arabs and Muslims have served, um, ha- have been actually manipulated and used as a scapegoat to justify these uh, tremendous, uh, you know, breaches of, uh, of, of civil rights and liberties. Lawyer Amina Shirazi is legal counsel for the Canadian Arab Federation. To learn more about the Federation, visit their site at www.caf.ca. This has been Part 5, The Global Impact of September 11th, from the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy, which explores the theme of terrorism and the rule of law through international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th, as well as the ongoing international campaign against terror. In the coming episodes, we will continue to explore Canada's anti-terrorism strategy and its global context. I was Khalid. This has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM. Join us next time for Part 6, The Security State.